Hi, everybody. I'm Sunny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to We Gotta Talk Special Edition, coming at you on a Monday. I'm really excited about today's episode because we are addressing something that I feel is the elephant in the room for a lot of parents these days. My guest is Dr. Tina Granani. She is a pediatric psychiatrist with Advent Health for Children, specifically located in the Orlando area. She's been practicing for seven years, and she sees kids regularly who are struggling with their mental health. Now, May is National Mental Health Awareness Month, and I think we do a great job as adults of talking about our issues and where we stand with our relationship to therapy or to drugs that help with anxiety or depression. But often what's left out of the conversation is our kids' mental health, because for some reason there's this giant block when it comes to talking about our kids needing something beyond what we have been able to provide them. So today in this episode, we're going to talk about trends in mental health for kids. And I found this to be completely shocking, but I guess when you talk to parents, it it, it makes sense. Um, back in 2019, pre-pandemic, an official memo from three national groups was sent out, including the American Association of Pediatrics, that there was a national children's mental health crisis. Now, we know that things have been bad for kids, but um, Dr. Granani, who's now joining us live on the show here, um, to hear it uh, officially stated in such terms is, is kind of shocking. And this was pre-pandemic, before the lockdown, before our many children were removed from their regular routines and their um, you know regular playdates and socialization. Um, how did that feel when when you saw that in black and white, how much kids are actually struggling? I mean, not too much of a shock, actually, but maybe that's just because it's kind of day in and day out, kind of we're seeing um, that in our offices anyway. So it wasn't too much of a shock. Um, but, you know, it's always a little bit sobering when you do hear that, especially coming out from three major organizations. So, you know, it's a national issue, not just a local one. Yeah. And you can only assume that since things um, got completely topsy-turvy with COVID that, that this trend has only continued, right? Only been continued, right. Exactly. I, think a lot of, I think a lot of parents wonder this, and um, you would be the one to provide the stats behind it. It feels harder. Life feels harder for kids these days. And we can only anecdotally sort of say that, but you're seeing actual numbers and statistics. Is life really harder for kids these days? Or are we just doing a better job at keeping track of the specific challenges that our kids are facing? Yeah, I think that's a tough, complex question. Um, you know, rates are on the rise, um, like you just mentioned, about one in five children struggles with their mental health, and this is between the ages of three and 17. So if you consider this is for diagnosed mental health conditions, so if you consider what's out there that's not even being professionally diagnosed, those who haven't sought out the help or taken that initial step yet, the number's probably even higher. So there has been a lot of inquiry into, you know, what are the reasons for this, you know, um, and uh, and experts believe that it, it is multifactorial. So there's not just really one thing that you can point to with this. Um, there is a number of things. But one thing that you mentioned is that life is actually a bit tougher um, these days in this day and age now for for kids and teens. Um, one of the things is the rise in social media mm -hmm. Um use over the past one to two decades. So that that's um, really has been a factor. But 
not the only factor by any means, for sure. Yeah, let, um, let, let's broadly go over some of those too. Social media gets demonized and with good with good cause, but the fact is, you are seeing children who are um, younger than the age of a social media using child. Phone so, coding, right, right, mm-hmm. right. So, what are, what other broad issues are you seeing being being at the root cause of this uh, these mental health challenges? Right. So decrease in socialization in general, whether, you know, kids are on their phone or not. Um, But as far as like being in extracurricular activities, going out to parks and libraries and doing things outside of the home, that is down. Um, Mm -hmm. You can't point that all to social media use, but sure, that that is to play a factor in that. Um, Also, you know, um, just with global events and the different things that are happening around the world, you know, you, you just get out of a pandemic and then, um, then there's, you know, war and occupations and then climate change and, and kids are starting to kind of pick up on these things younger and younger even now. Um, and in addition to that peer pressure, bullying, um, also plays into this. And we we know that it's not all just older teens who, you know, bully each other. We know this happens in middle schools and at all ages, really. Um, so so that is a factor. And then with the with the pandemic, um, kids are you know, over the past couple of couple of years have spent increasing amount of times at home. So when you think about even just worst case scenarios, kids that are experiencing abuse or neglect or being witness to domestic abuse and things already, that now was heightened even more incredibly. Is there one, uh, I guess I'm I'm hearing you list off the stuff and it doesn't seem like there's one bad guy or there's one major factor. It seems to be a confluence of it all. But um, when you get these kids in your office, and again, you treat and work with children anywhere from, like you said, about age five through 17, the year before they're legally adults. What's the first thing, Dr. Granani, that they often say to you when they when they sit down and talk to you about what, what's bothering them? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, some of them aren't really even able to say right away. Um, So in certain cases, we are relying on the parent to kind of first talk about what their concerns are. Usually once it is out there and you are then able to speak with the child or teen alone, they will then usually admit to what's going on. Um, Some Mm -hmm. of them will speak about it right away and they'll mention depression, anxiety, Um, They'll even mention OCD. Some kids do struggle with that. Um, So they would talk about it as well as self-injury, including non-suicidal self-injury. So these are some of the complaints that we're we're seeing. When you say non-suicidal self-injury, is that like cutting? Cutting. Tell everybody who's who's not familiar with that, um, not only what it is, but why kids say they're, why kids say they're doing that. Right, right. So Kids do mention various reasons for doing that. For some of them, it is to feel pain because they're feeling numb. Um, For some of them, it's to punish themselves. And um, they aren't intentionally making deep cuts. They're more superficial, but we do need to educate them that they can accidentally become deep cuts. And then there are children that are cutting as a suicidal intent. Um, So that's different than what we're terming the non-suicidal self-injury. When you deal with a child who's struggling with that, I would imagine that the human instinct is to immediately say, oh my God, just just please stop. But you can't really approach, um, can't really approach it in that indelicate of a manner. Of course, when you're talking one-on-one with a child who's struggling, like how do you work around that? And how do you begin to urge them in the direction of, of safety? 
Mm-hmm. Right, right. So, you know, initially you want to you want to kind of validate what the pain is and struggle that they are going through first, um, or else it can sound a bit parentified, you know, as a doctor, you know, just saying, don't, please don't do that. It's not healthy. You will need to explain the risks, infection and bleeding risks. And usually they'll understand that, but you want to first approach it from um, the more validating and non-judgmental um, aspects so that they know they're not being judged and that's going to help them be more likely to talk about it. And um, we will often do a safety plan with the child where they're, um, being kind of asked to think about what are the warning signs, mm-hmm. what are their triggers before cutting, um, what are uh, different coping skills they can use, whether that's to distract themselves, do certain activities, get out of the house, um, speak with uh, a loved one or a friend or someone that they feel they can trust, or reaching out to a professional or crisis hotline. And these are all the things that are usually part of the safety plan. Yeah. I mean, I remember I I was a teenager in the nineties and when this first sort of, not that it was the first time it's probably ever happened, but sort of entered the collective consciousness and you would hear kids who would be doing that or, you know, hear about kids who are doing that, or there were references to it in, in TV or in movies. And it felt so like, it's all about, like you said, the endorphin release sort of is, is that what the aim of this is, is to relieve stress in some way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to relieve stress in some way, and I'm not sure that there's um, enough like research and evidence to show what's exactly happening in the brain when that's occurring, but mm-hmm. it definitely can be a little bit of sort of a, a bit of an addiction in a way mm-hmm. for some teens to cut, um, just like other unhealthy behaviors can be, um, whether that's, you know, binging on food or, or you know, social media, gaming addictions, these different things. So that can be like that for some teens. And so we try to replace that type of um, harmful activity with something maybe similar that still feels like a release, but it's not actually going to cause physical harm. And also educating parents about kind of keeping sharps and knives and things, razors, um, shaving blades, things like that away during the time that they are depressed, just to kind of remove that temptation or urge to, to even want to use those things. Would you suggest a parent confront a child directly about this? Or is it one of those things where, I mean, obviously if they're in the active act of doing it, but is it something that parents should try to handle on their own? Because we have impulses as parents and we think that we can go in and with a couple of sentences or something, save the day or, or change their mind. But what do you tell parents who are very eager to intervene, to make their child healthier in this particular situation? Um, do you say to stay away from the conversation or to face it head on in the home? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. So, you know, each parent kind of knows their kids best, but you don't want to kind of make it to where um, it doesn't seem like they might need professional help um, Mm -hmm. with a therapist or seeing a doctor, because when it's to the point of cutting, oftentimes they will need more professional help. You do want to ask them about it and talk to them about it. If you see it and not ignore it. And if it's happening, you know, um, show that you care, sit down and talk, Mm. try to figure out what is the reasons underlying that and also offer them to get some help. And that as a parent, you'll, we'll work on finding that for them. And and for someone that's been cutting um, multiple times or a frequent cutter, uh, parents should, uh, because oftentimes they'll wear long sleeves or hoodies Mm. and things like that, that are even, you know, trend these days with teenagers as well. So, but you want to do periodic 
checking of the skin, whether it's the legs, thighs, you know, upper arms, whatever it is, sometimes that they'll be covering that you may not see. Um, but working with a therapist is definitely key on that. Let's talk about, you brought up um, video games, isolation, social isolation in general, when it comes to kids and mental health. And we have seen in the past several decades an increase in kids engaging with their screens, whether that be a smartphone or a video game of some sort. Is there research that actually supports a decrease in mental health with an increase in screen time usage, no matter what type of screen that is? Mm-hmm. So there is um, research that is that has, I would say, started to look into this. I think there still needs to be a lot more research to be done in this area. Um, but there has been research that has been, you know, linking those two together. And that's why the American Association of Pediatrics um, has recommendations of um, kind of a family social media use plan to come together as a group, as a family, and kind of um, go come up with a more detailed plan. And, and for most kids doing two hours or less per day of social media or internet use. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, you know, broadly, the so far the research has been showing just decrease in self-care in general, decrease mm-hmm. sleep, um, worsening mood, um, worsening eating habits. Um, so all of these things tied together as well as a decrease in socialization, which is probably more um, an obvious um, correlation there. So I think there's going to be a lot more coming out in the coming years um, Mm. to, to show maybe larger studies. Yeah. I would, I would love to watch a a tracking of my child's like brain activity on and off a device. This is not an exaggeration. They are different human beings when they've been removed from their screens. And we're not heavy on screen time in general, Mm. but even the small amount of exposure that they get sometimes more on weekends, um, I notice mm-hmm. an improvement in every aspect of their personality when the iPads are hidden for days. And I, I keep thinking to myself, my God, why do we even have them? I want to throw them in the fire and burn them. And <laughs> they're the greatest, you know, convenience. And they're also the greatest challenge to parenting. So I wonder why I don't just completely get rid of them. I mean, it's very clear that they're the problem is what I'm trying mm-hmm, to say. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, just... Uh... Yeah, I think even as a parent myself, I struggle with that um, because I see it in my kids, although they're really little, um, but I see it as well. So I feel that sometimes there's a time and place for them, um, but we really need to monitor it and have limits around it. And that's really kind of what I preach to patients and families that I see as well, because um you know, we were talking about research before too, and it has shown that increased emotionality, just like um, volatile, labile um, mood uh, with with increasing amounts of, of, of screen time. Um, and so, and, and like I mentioned, they're not sleeping as well with mm. the increased screen time as well. So I think if we do follow what the AAP is recommending uh, around those limits, and that can be, you know, less than two hours on weekdays, you know, it might be more like, three hour on a Saturday or something like that, but a general two hours or less rule. And if we can even get, you know, much less, less than that, great. But we also shouldn't berate ourselves too much if we go um, over either, because um, 
what I always explain to parents is say it's been a bad week or a bad month and the child or teen has had a really lot of screen time. You can, you can still do a detox or, you know, it may be tough, it may be difficult, but you can still always work on it. You know, once you have noticed that it's become an issue because none of us are perfect. It's like, it's such a challenge. I mean, it's easy to like glorify the good old days. And I know it wasn't always better in every aspect when we were growing up, but I do feel that this has added a layer of challenge to parents, parenting that's just, it it feels insurmountable. And then to, to say nothing of the question of when to give your child a smartphone for the first time. And I've interviewed plenty of experts in this field who all seem to agree that scientifically speaking, aiming for high school is the best general time for that. That still feels young to me. I mean, but then again, I'm going to be the only parent who doesn't. And what if he or she, my, my, my children are still seeing content on other people's smartphones and what's the difference anyway? I mean, these are, there's so many complicating factors in this discussion. It can feel really difficult for a parent to nail down their own priorities and their own set of rules. Right. I agree with you. You'll hear different things from different people, but um, you know, the early teens is what most of them will kind of convene upon. Um, And kids are talking anyway about these things. So Mm -hmm. the other kids are having their phones, right? So what you mentioned is true. Um, But there are parent monitoring apps. Like I I would just throw one out there, like the Bark app. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you can still utilize these um, apps or other parental controls in a way, I guess you would Mm -hmm. say. Um, to still be able to supervise what it is that your kids are doing for the most part. Yeah. Um, Dr. Granani, have you been seeing um, a major influx in your patients in general? We talked a little bit about this at the very beginning of the interview, but I want to give some context to parents and um, inform them of, I don't want to say how bad, but how big of a problem this really is, but also not scare them. But if you were speaking, say, at an industry conference, or if you were talking to somebody even who's not overly familiar with what you do, how would you broadly describe how bad the issue of mental health is with children right now? Yeah. So um, I think I was previously mentioning one in five kids. So that kind of does speak to how large of an issue this is. And even even just earlier this year, um, the CDC and other agencies put out um, the news as well about climbing rates uh, of depression, anxiety um, among especially teens and in all groups and all demographics, but especially females. Um, more so than males, and especially LGBTQ youth as well. So, so things are climbing. There's also a shortage, a national shortage of pediatric psychiatrists as well. So that doesn't help the issue. I, I've spoken to, even just recently, I've spoken to um, some pediatricians out several states away um, that we were discussing. Um, offering our services in Florida over there via telehealth. So virtual Mm -hmm. services, just because their wait list to see a pediatric psychiatrist out there is one year. Um, Yeah. So, so it's really, it's really difficult to get them the care they need, especially for um, somebody who's in a crisis or has maybe more complex needs. Um, Some kids might need inpatient level of care, being in the hospital for for, for certain kids with an acute issue. And in that state, there was only one place they could go to in the state. So um, so you're looking at especially rural areas. Mm -hmm. um, And this was in middle America. And, you know, so if you're 
looking, especially in rural areas, it's really difficult um, to seek out the care. And that's why, that's why as far as, you know, resources, um, I tell parents uh, in the community even to look to local allies, teachers, uh, schools, church pastors, especially pediatric um, primary care. So family pr practitioners and pediatricians would be our first line of defense because they're more most in tune with the local resources mm -hmm. um, for therapists, community mental health centers, pediatric psychiatrists like myself and, and, and other mental health professionals. I think what prevents some parents too from seeking out help for their children it's probably two-pronged stigma, which don't even get me started. I don't know why we worry about what other people think about us and our children. And also the concern that medication might be pushed on their children. And, and I use that expression sort of broadly, but it uh, might be suggested to their children and they're uncomfortable with even the thought of medicating. So I'd like you to address both of those things. Number one, the stigma and how you talk with parents. How would you, for example, encourage a parent who's listening who might hear some tones of familiarity in what you're saying about what to look for, what you've seen, what you've seen in, in your patients, but is hesitant for whatever reason to seek out that help? How do you convince them that this is something they should maybe explore? Right, right. So the first part of your question, just addressing stigma, actually, um, Advent Health for Children and Heart of Florida United Way just launched May 1st, the Be a Mind Leader campaign, um, which was started to kind of start the conversation mm -hmm. around mental health and normalize this. So the Be a Mind Leader campaign um, will put expert information that's curated, entertaining, and digestible so that kids will and the adults in their lives will be more in tune to this and start talking more openly and honestly about it. And so that's um, a huge campaign um, being put out in multiple different ways, out in the schools, um, out by social media, out in the community, different events, um, news outlets and everything, so that um, we can create more mind leaders in our community particularly Central Florida. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, stigma is prevalent everywhere. And we're trying to do what we can to approach that and kind of make that continue to change because there's been steps, started to be steps to decrease those that stigma. Um, but it's still such a huge issue for so many parents um, that it's kind of an, a never ending quest at this point. And, and what I would say to parents is, you know, whether whether you're reaching out to your pediatrician or even just considering getting a specialist involved or any of these things that um, you're going for an evaluation, an assessment, possibly a diagnosis. It's nothing is, um, you know, written in stone. What you're going for is for an explanation as to what's going on with your child and what are the treatment recommendations. So I, I do explain to parents that, um, Therapy is really powerful, so it's really not all about medications. There's certain diagnoses that lend themselves more towards medications, but there's other diagnoses that really lend itself more to therapy. So it really depends on what it is that we're talking about. I try not to push medications unless I really feel that it is necessary. So what mm -hmm. I speak about, you know, say, for example, um, we're talking about depression, and I kind of stratify it as far as is this mild, moderate, or severe depression and explain to them what the research and data shows. Because if it's a severe depression or um, 
then then evidence shows that combining the two modalities between medication and therapy is more beneficial with a larger response and a faster response than doing one of those approach approaches alone. Um, and what, when it is something more mild, then usually making um, choosing one treatment approach, either therapy or medication might be very ideal for that family. And in that case, we do want that shared decision-making of what's the parent's preference um, involved uh, at that point. Um, and we do take into consideration what concerns the family has so that we can kind of make sure that we um, do the appropriate psychoeducation because maybe what they've heard or are thinking about is valid, but maybe some of what they've heard is not really accurate or maybe misinformation going around. So if it's if if it is that, then we want to make sure that we are tackling that and kind of explaining it um, more in detail so that they can really make a more informed choice. What are some of the stick or not stigmas? What are some of the misconceptions that you would like to bust about? mental mm -hmm. health and kids. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you know, that, uh, if they get, if they get started on a medication, that that means they're basically resigned to that for life and they'll have to take it forever. Um, that's one that sometimes comes up. Um, another one will be that their child will turn into a zombie. Um, and so we need to kind of look into that more and what it is that we're talking about when they say that and kind of then go over more about the exact side effects more in detail. Mm -hmm. um, and then another very common one is that the medications will be addictive. I think that's one of the more common ones that I hear. And so I explained to parents that we don't prescribe really addicting medications to kids and teens by and large in general anyway. So kind of what what does the medication do? What is ex expected to do um, that it does not cause tolerance or dependence that you would associate with more medications that are addictive? And um, explaining that to them usually allays the fears so that they can come at it with a more, you know, unbiased approach um, versus, you know, um, just being completely for or against because it really comes down to being actually more in the details. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of fear. And I, I know just having heard conversations about this, that parents specifically have a fear about ADHD medications um, and those are abused by adults plenty. So um, is the concern that I, I guess in regards to that particular medication and that particular issue that you might be treating, is that one of the ones that comes up frequently? Because I've heard plenty of discussions about, oh, you know, I, my child has been diagnosed ADHD, but I'm really concerned about um, addressing with medication because of blah, blah, blah. So do you want to speak specifically to that? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do actually like talking about this topic. Yeah, when it comes to ADHD, a lot of parents are fearful. So I totally agree with that. And I hear that a lot in my office. Um, so what I explain to them is that, you know, because the certain certain ADHD medicines, stimulant medications can be abused, especially recreationally with college stage students and then adults in general, right? So, um, but for someone that actually truly has ADHD, they're much more likely much, much, much more unlikely to abuse the medication because it doesn't give those type of effects that it does to kids that don't have ADHD or adults that don't have ADHD. Mm -hmm. So really the most important thing is doing a very detailed assessment, history taking exam and getting as much information from the teachers, from the school as possible to be more sure and confirm or rule out ADHD. That's the most important thing in the first place um, because kids with ADHD, 
PTSD that are put on stimulant medications. They don't get a high out mm. of it. Um, and the doses that we use are such that's different than recreational, just abusing of the medications. So using a long acting medication is also something that would highly decrease the, the abuse potential of the medication. And knowing if a child has ADHD from an early age, that's much easier. If you're, if you have an older teen, um, it can be much more difficult to tease out whether that child has ADHD or not. Um, so when they're a younger mm. child, it's much, you, you can get a lot more information from the school, teacher observations, parent observations, that the reliability of the diagnosis is, is much higher. Um, mm. And so we do always in the vast majority of cases get that information beforehand so that we, mm -hmm. we do know um, and use medications in, in either a long-acting format or in such a way that they're um, highly unlikely to be abused. And that's on the other side of the coin, there's also non-stimulant medications. So the non-stimulant uh, medications for ADHD that maybe a lot of parents don't know about, they're not, a, they're not able to be abused actually at all. Mm -hmm. um, tell, tell me what ADHD looks like in kids too. I always find it interesting that internet culture has this double-edged sword effect of really helping us to become aware of things that we might not have considered problems for and perhaps leading us down a path of healing and um, connecting with great providers. But it also can make parents think, oh my gosh, my kid has this and my kid has that. So please clarify if you would, the classic symptoms of ADHD and does it necessarily just look like, oh, you know, his leg is always tapping in class and he can't pay attention long enough to finish a math problem. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, um, I generally try to advise, you know, kids or adults to not look at TikTok per se, and not to say there's not like good information, but the on there, but the majority of the information uh, on TikTok is is not going to be really accurate. So, you know, if you have a concern, I would explore it further. Um, that doesn't mean that it's going to come out as a yes, your child has ADHD. It could come out as no, your child does not. So, um, but some of the things that um, are some of the, I would say, core symptoms of ADHD lack of attention to detail, carelessness, rushing through work, um, being distractible very easily, um, uh, forgetful, disorganized, making impulsive decisions, not thinking through things necessarily before acting or saying things, interrupting people, talking very excessively. Mm. Also things like hyperactivity, um, being on the go, almost like an energizer bunny, um, but not all kids with ADHD are hyperactive. Hmm. And, and so it looks like, uh, I guess this is going to be a layman's description, but like a, an increased interest in just kind of having your hands and everything all the time, conversations and physically being places like, is, is it just like a heightened kind of desire to like do it all, all at once? I think they're heightened to the stimulation, the stimuli around um, so whether that's other people talking or getting involved in other conversations or other interesting things that are happening uh, around, um, they're more, they get those stimuli much more than others. So they're more going to react to it more easily than others. So, and, and another misconception that I get from um, families sometimes with ADHD is that there's no area or any arena that they're able to focus at all, because that's not true, because there are some kids that actually can focus quite well on the video game of their choice, something that's an extremely high interest of theirs, but in all, in, 
the majority of other domains they're not able to, especially in school academic related domains that they're not able to. So just because they can focus in one certain thing doesn't mean that they can't have ADHD. That's interesting. Okay, since we're going through like classic symptoms of certain um, particular conditions, can we run through some other ones too? Can you tell us a little bit about how depression might look in kids? Mm -hmm. Right. So um, depression uh, can look like many different things, depending on the kid, depending on the teen. Um, so, for example, teens are much more likely to display irritability. So an irritable mood um, versus necessarily tearfulness or what can be more um, subjectively seen as sadness. So that can happen with younger kids as well. But I want to say irritability as a warning sign to look for. Uh, but also being withdrawn, um, not enjoying things as much as they used to, not taking part in activities or socialization as much as before, um, a, a change in their appetite up or down, um, either sleeping too little or too much, low energy, low motivation. Um, these are all some of the warning signs or, or, or self-injury, like cutting what we, what we mentioned before. Mm -hmm. uh, decline in their grades in school would be another big one as well. So those are some of the biggest warning signs for that. What about anxiety in kids? And it's kind of more of a blanket term. I know that gets thrown around quite a bit. How do you tell the difference between a kid who's clinically anxious and someone who might just be on the shy side or socially withdrawn or nervous even? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's actually several different types of clinical anxiety disorders. So there is generalized anxiety disorder, which is kind of excessively wor worried or constantly worried with everyday routine things. Um, but there's also several other different anxiety disorders. And so there, with that being several different anxiety disorders, it's pretty common for kids that come into um, our care to have an anxiety disorder, actually. Um, so there's separation anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, panic disorder, specific phobias, and down to compulsive other disorders as well, which include OCD, hoarding, hair pulling disorder. Um, so, and there's even selective mutism as well, um, where uh, a child may not be speaking, especially in certain um, in situations and around certain people. So there's a variety. There's also PTSD. So um, that that is post-traumatic stress disorder uh, that can affect kids as well. And in fact, we see a number of kids and teens, unfortunately, with PTSD. So there's really um, a wide variety of different types of anxiety disorders. So we normally... Um, it is a pretty involved assessment um, where we're asking these questions, um, finding out what the behaviors are, especially avoidance, because most of the different anxiety disorders, one of the huger um, telltale signs will be avoidance of various different things, whether that's school avoidance or avoidance of other things. Um, also, having very frequent stomach aches or very frequent headaches um, can be associated with an anxiety uh, disorder as well. And we'll give uh, rating scales, like screening mm -hmm. objective measures for children to do or parents to do or both. And um, that helps us get at uh, the severity of the anxiety disorder as well as narrowing it down if that's the case. Wow. That was a long list of like potential things. Um, so if, if parents hear something in, in what you said that sort of pings 
and they think, okay, that sounds like maybe my kid is scared to go to sleepovers and separation anxiety isn't that, right? It's not like, oh, she just doesn't like to sleep at a friend's house. It would be more. Yeah. So that would be one of the questions that we ask if they're able to do sleepovers, but that's also an age appropriate thing. And also dependent on if the parents really permissive of that. So there's different factors involved with that as well. But one of the things usually that would be a question or just being able to kind of like even go to school in the mornings or just even be out in public with their not side by side with their parents. I've had some kids with anxiety disorder that can't even be in a different room in their own house um, with from the parents. So there's various different signs and symptoms. Okay. All right. And are Um, we missing anything else? Oh, I do want to touch on PTSD. Again, social media has made us overuse clinical terms that probably mm -hmm. don't apply to us. And I can't tell you how many, even adults have been like, oh my gosh, I have PTSD as it relates to uh, X, Y, or Z, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, what is actually PTSD? And are we even um, sort of pop culturally overutilizing that term? Mm-hmm. I think I think people do use just like colloquially in conversation words like PTSD or bipolar even or OCD uh, really frequently um, when it's, you know, someone is displaying a certain trait or something in a very specific situation. It's not really that disorder either. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I get parents concerned or children concerned um, about X, Y, or Z, but then after the evaluation, I explained to them that actually you don't meet the criteria for bipolar disorder, for example, or or mm-hmm. or PTSD. And sometimes um, they have kind of a subclinical issue where they have certain signs and symptoms, but it doesn't really um, meeting of the full diagnosis. And and therapy can still be helpful for that. So I explained to families, you know, always emphasize the importance of, of therapy. And if there's a child that I don't have to get started on medication, I prefer that. It's not that we prefer to always medicate for everything. Um, but I know you were asking about what is PTSD. So um, PTSD would be, you know, obviously there would be some kind of trauma, either a scary, dangerous, or violent event that they've either themselves been through or witnessed someone else go through, um, or they've been through abuse such as physical or sexual abuse. Um, Another one is emotional or verbal abuse as well, or witness to domestic violence um, between their uh, parents or a parent and their significant other, for example, or even witness to parental drug use, um, because that would be associated with neglect. So we don't want to forget neglect when we talk about abuse as well. Um, so, uh, or even severe forms of bullying can also be a trauma. So there's various different things that um, would have happened in the child's either um either remote past or more recent past. And sometimes Mm -hmm. there's cumulative trauma, things that are maybe, I don't want to say smaller, but certain things that more cumulative that they added up over time. And because of that, they have PTSD. So you're looking for that. And then you're also looking for problems with their sleep, changes with with that insomnia, um, or sometimes nightmares or flashbacks, um, avoidance about certain cues or reminders or people, places that would remind them about the event that happened or feeling numb towards others and and certain things that you even see in in war veterans, right? In adults too. Mm -hmm. So some of those things can be happening in maybe a different way, looks in a different, slightly different picture for kids and teens, but the underlying fight or flight response is the same as, you know, in in adults, if not, not even fine tuned really 
quite yet, but those 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 foundations of those flight or flight response or freeze are there. Um, and so you're looking for that and um, anger, anger problems, PTSD can present with that hmm. and certain fears and phobias as well. So it's, it's really more about the picture that you're looking at altogether. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I bet you just, do you hate TikTok because everyone's walking and self-diagnosing? <laughs> <laughs> do I hate to what? Sorry. Do you hate TikTok and like social media? Because everyone's like, oh, Dr. Granati, I'm convinced that you know, I have, you know, or on there myself, but I've had colleagues that actually have gone on there to have more informational TikTok. I don't know if channels is the right word or exactly what it is or more, more educational accounts. I would say colleagues of mine have, I've never actually been on there myself, but I do have a little bit of a hesitation towards TikTok for that reason, because any, anybody, I mean, just the influx of the amount of people that either think they have autism or something else that they don't um, is really exponentially higher than it. I guess it even already was before TikTok. So I think TikTok is pretty famous for that, like misinformation. Yeah, everyone is is something. Let, I do have to ask you quickly about that, though, even as an adult. And, and again, I'm not overly active on TikTok. I'm more on Instagram. And for that reason, I find it to be, speaking of mental health, overstimulating in a way that even my adult brain can't process. So I stay away, but I've seen enough and I've heard enough discussions around its impact, particularly on teenagers, mental health, that it's made me sort of peek in and, and think about things, but even adults I'm hearing, and, and I've heard things that experts have said on various social channels. And I thought, God, it's not like, maybe I'm on the spectrum or maybe I am, you know, you, everyone identifies with something that is not neurotypical, right? Like we all have our things. Like Exactly. We all have our things in different idiosyncrasies and quirks. Okay. And it doesn't mean that we have something diagnosable, correct? I really want exactly. to make this point. Exactly. But, you know, if there is enough different various things and enough different people in your life have cause for concern for that, I don't want to say don't get that evaluated because there's several people out there that didn't get diagnosed with autism as a youngster, but then have it as an adult come to realize later. Um, But that's different. That's different than just the different pet peeves that each of us might have Mm -hmm. or quirks that we might engage in or idiosyncrasies, we call them, Um, you know, or times that we don't want to be social compared to others. And we all have those. Um, But if it was enough of them and they're pervasive, meaning that they're always there, um, or enough people have concern that you may have autistic traits, then that could be something, you know, that might be worth finding out. But yeah, by and large, that's exactly what I would say is is what you said. Have you heard about this um, Tourette's trend? And I'm using air quotes here on social media where... Children, especially teenagers, are watching and exposing themselves to the feeds of people who have Tourette's and are sort of sympathetically taking on some of the traits. It's it's a social contagion issue, some people are, are saying. And um, it's interesting how our exposure to the attention that people can get, particularly on social media, can be a draw for some teens. So I guess the question is, have you heard of these trends, these um, social contagion slash mental health challenges that teens are suddenly coming up with? And is that a real thing? Can we expose ourselves to someone else's um, particular issues enough so that we sympathetically end up taking some of that on? 
Yeah, I mean, I haven't particularly had that one in my office, what you mentioned as far as someone taking on those traits of Tourette's, um, but I've definitely heard of that in other realms, um, even um, that happening uh, because there is that social contagion aspect and that um, is put into question sometimes even with kids that cut and self-harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it's something where it involves abnormal movements and 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 um, things that can look um, neurological in a way. Um, I do frequently see various different movement complaints or movement disorders, neurological issues, even seizures that are in the category of functional neurological disorders where kids and teens and even adults can have an actual neurological issue, but um, when they're examined by a neuro- neurologist or, um, you know, a physician in the ER or a primary care doctor, or any other specialist, have laboratories done, have head imaging done, have an EEG done, um, you know, looked at their reflexes and everything else, there is no really other cause, mm-hmm. bodily physical cause other than um, psychological. Um, and so that is functional neurological disorders. And I've actually had... Um, several teens uh, in in my practice that have had that. And so I usually do more of education um, about that. And if there is an underlying anxiety or depression that the child is going through, treat that, um, but not to treat the actual movement issue. Right. So you're treating the reason that that person may have so strongly identified with that particular tick or issue rather than them being an actual right. epileptic, for example. Yeah. Exactly. And that's its own challenge, I'm sure. Its own mental health challenge. It's its own challenge, right. Mm -hmm. What does Mm -hmm. that even qualify? Is it like extreme empathy? I mean, like what, how does that happen? There's there's various um, different factors that go into that as well, um, because there could be underlying anxieties that they're avoiding or um, the attention that they're getting when they're Mm. sick. and in that role is is different. And there must be some reason, right? You can't always figure out the exact reason, but sometimes you can. Um, but why it is that they, you know, um, absorbed that and, and, and started to do that. And, and uh, studies show that that actually usually will taper off on its own, those movements or those seizures, you know, whether it's six months, 12 months, but they'll gradually taper off on their own if you don't, um, you know, continue to um, focus, I guess, too much on, on that itself, but we do education for schools, even for examples, like teachers in schools will not really know what this is or how to approach it. Or, um, so we explain and educate, um, staff about, you know, this child doesn't need an ambulance every time X, Y, Z or something happens, you know, things like that. Wow. That's wild. And do you just say, stay away from the screens? Like, is that part of it too? I mean, if it's something like a TikTok thing, then, you right. know, yeah. that would be part of the conversation, but they don't always even, even say that, nor do the parents always even realize that that could be where that even came from. Wow. That's wild. I did want to touch quickly on bullying as well, Dr. Granani. Um, sadly, an issue as old as time, as long as people have been around other people. Um, but just because it's an issue that's always existed for children doesn't make it any less, um, you know, difficult to deal with. Um, how often do you see kids come in for that reason in particular? And what are some, um, 
what are some ways that you can arm children to deal with that in a productive way where they feel not only like they're removing themselves from the threat, but also protecting their pride and, and defending themselves in some way? What's the advice you give those kids? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's really tough because, you know, I see that a lot more often than I would like to, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say. Um, things that kids and parents don't even realize that it actually is bullying. Um, And so that may not even be, I guess, their presenting complaint, really. Mm -hmm. Um, So sometimes, you know, when you start to ask about depression or anxiety, that will come up pretty quickly. But other times, that's not even on the radar um, until, but we always ask about it um, and and talk about the different forms of bullying, even and cyberbullying and things um, that we're all aware about. Uh, But, you know, I've I've had kids and and teens that, um, you know, were ostracized um, for for various things or things that they didn't realize were, were, were bullying or things that they didn't even realize were like racially motivated speech, even things like that. Um, So if the child doesn't even recognize it, the parent's not even going to really be able to take action upon that unless the school mentions something. So sometimes the kids are aware about the bullying and the parents either have minimized it, sometimes that happens, or if they haven't and they are trying to do everything they can, sometimes the school will be minimizing of the bullying or, you know, take one approach. And if that approach didn't work, kind of throw up their hands and say, well, you know, well, we tried, you know, type mm-hmm. of thing. And then a lot of times the bullying will be continue to be ongoing, even though it has been addressed by the parent with the higher ups in the school. So um, we really try to explain to parents about their options, um, give them some resources like bullying websites where they can learn more about what to do, what steps they can take, uh, even um, bringing it up to someone else, maybe the principal or, you know, associate dean or something, somebody else at the school, or even bring it up to the school board if needed. Um, sometimes it's an option to switch schools, but we try obviously to not disrupt the the kid that's mm-hmm. being bullied if we can, right? So just different avenues you can take. But I think the first thing is really recognizing it for what it is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's so interesting because you talk to generations past about bullying in particular, and, you know, someone will say, well, you know, back in my day, we just knocked them out. They hit us, we hit them harder. Or when do you tell kids, just stand up for yourself and just, if you're hit, hit back. And if you're, because there is, um, you know, I, mm-hmm. I don't espouse violence, but I also wonder as a parent, how we teach pride and how we teach bodily autonomy and bodily protection. And um, I'm curious, like a professional's stand on that. Is there a balance between standing up for yourself and showing up as someone who is embodied in their strength and can protect themselves versus the person who just tries to disengage or handle it through an adult? Right, right, exactly. I think I think what I'm talking about is when it's like so far gone that it's not even right. anything that the child really can do to approach it. But I think what you're talking about is exactly very correct. Um, kind of arm your kid in the first place with what are what they can do, how they can talk to the other person that's doing that to them in the first mm-hmm. place to try to prevent it from getting escalating, you know, so, um, you know, try to talk directly with the child so they're not labeled like a a tattletale or a snitch or something like that either. Um, So you want to have them be able to verbalize and vocalize for themselves and not be aggressive, but be assertive in the way that that's not okay. Um, Mm -hmm. Stand away or, you know, uh, taking that approach where they can handle it themselves, not not necessarily going to the teacher every time. Um, Mm -hmm. But if it's something where that's not helping, um, some kids won't even ask an adult or 
anyone or a teacher um, at all, uh, mm. just because they're afraid of maybe that exact thing being seen as a, a tattletale um, or nothing will be done about it anyway. So what's the point? Mm. Um, so some, so yeah. So the, the first line would be always trying to have the kid be able to fend for themselves and explain um, or use their, you know, words like you would say to a toddler and things like that first right. and then seek out an adult if needed. Okay. Uh, I feel like we hit on a lot of the big things. Dr. Granani, is there anything else that you want to urge parents or caretakers to especially pay attention to? I know this month is dedicated to mental health awareness in general, but this is something that we're always thinking about and we're always paying attention to our children. So what advice do you want to leave us with as parents and caretakers? Yeah. So we want to, you know, make sure that we're kind of taking care of the basics as far as, um, you know, physical activity, our health and wellness, how much sleep we're getting, how much um, uh, activity and, and bodily movement and exercise that we're doing, how much water we're taking in, how many fruits and vegetables and things like that. So those are some of the basics that are going to be underlying our mental health. And then beyond that, I think one thing we didn't really touch on yet, but I really want to highlight is that one of the biggest things even beyond just like sitting down and talking to your children about these struggles is modeling that um, yourself, um, setting that example. So if a parent or an adult is struggling with anything, um, it really says more than a thousand words, really, if, if, if we seek out and advocate for ourselves and do our own, engage in our own self-care or find support when we need it, that really, um, says more than we ever can really know uh, because children are really absorbing everything. So mm -hmm. I think that's one of the biggest lessons to take as a parent or caregiver. And I think if, if, if anyone's curious to learn more about the Be a Mind Leader campaign, go on beamindleader.com or on social channels like Facebook or Instagram at Be a Mind Leader uh, to find out more information about all what I'm, I'm talking about just now. Um, and the National Crisis Line 988 for everyone to be aware about. That is 24-7 um, Crisis Line uh, that uh, that we encourage um, families to uh, use if needed, as well as local local resource, which is 211, where um, parents and families can even um, enlist mobile response who are clinicians that will even come out to the home if needed and um, really try to help in the situation at the time. And, and one of the biggest things is to try to prevent hospitalizations as much as possible. And so that is um, something that mobile response uh, will help with as well. Yeah. And that last point, I want to go back and re reiterate what you said, Dr. Granani, which is please, guys, prioritize your and your children's mental health. There is no shame associated with pursuing avenues that make you better and make your kids better. No one cares that much about what you do with your private life. I promise. Right. Please seek it out. Right. Dr. Granani. Cause you know, my concern is, um, people are so concerned about their social status or, Oh my God, what must they think? She goes to therapy. <gasps> it's very, can be a little step -ferty sometimes mm -hmm. in certain mm -hmm. places. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, only by coming out and sharing our resources and stories, can we break down that stigma and make it not a big deal because that's how we make better adults for the next generation. So I just want to 
give a big second to what you said about pursuing your own mental health and making your kids' mental health a priority too. Because listen, they're going to be running the world someday and we need people who are in command of themselves and who are, who are acting out of kindness and goodness. So I can't say that enough. Right. Right. Yes, exactly. And and the more things are swept under the rug, actually, as we all know, um, bottling things inside, eventually it will um, spill out and it's going to be much more of an issue to deal with and more of a problem at that time if it's not kind of worked on earlier on. So, mm-hmm. yep. Get yourself to therapy, get your kids to therapy. Dr. Katina Granano, you have been so gracious with your advice and wisdom. Um, thank you to Advent Health for, for letting us chat with you. Thank you for your time. I know you're so busy. Um, so, so thanks for spending some time with us today. Of course. Thank you as well. I'm happy anytime to get the word out there a little bit about more about this realm. So thank you for everything you do as well. Thank you. And and to anyone who watched live, thank you guys for tuning in. If you're listening on the podcast, we'll include the links that Dr. Granani mentioned, including the Be a Mind Leader, as well as the 988 and 211 resource, which I think was was great information to put out there as well. But yeah, get out there and, and be proactive. Um, I just really want to stress one more time what Dr. Granani said, which is this is our path as parents to choose and teaching them that mental health is a huge part of our overall health and success is just a wonderful step to take. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of We Gotta Talk. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and follow along on Instagram at Sunny Abata, S-O-N-N-I-A-B-A-T-T-A. All of the latest blog posts are at wegotatalk.com slash blog. <laughs>